Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 3rd of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The national minimum wage increased this week. The new rate of pay at 9.80 an hour is up from 9.55 an hour and was announced in October's budget. This year's increase is uh, the fourth successive increase on the minimum hourly rate of pay workers receive and was uh, recommended by the Low Pay Commission. That commission was established in 2015 by the then Minister for Business, Labour's Jed Nash. Senator Nash, who is now his party's spokesperson on Employment Affairs, says today's rate actually falls below what people need to earn if they're to have a decent standard of living. And uh, Senator Nash is in the studio with us uh, this morning. And a very good morning to you and Happy New Year to you. And thank you for coming in to us this morning. And you say that that rate of 980 should actually be 1190. Why so? Yeah, over time, um, I've um, been a long-standing believer in the concept of the living wage. Um, Nobody pretends that the national minimum wage, which is the basic floor beneath which nobody should be allowed to fall in Ireland uh, in terms of hourly income, is in any way adequate to meet people's um, general needs in terms of housing, in terms of transport, in terms of feeding and clothing themselves. Mm. Um, So an organisation was set up about 2013, 2014, um, the Living Wage Technical Group, uh, comprising of a number of think, tank, think tanks, trade unions, uh, academics, to look at actually what an individual would require to have a reasonable standard of living. Mm. Uh, you know, put food on the table, be able to you know, get transport to work, mm. um, go to the cinema uh, maybe every few weeks, have a drink, have a meal occasionally, things that people you would hope in a decent society would be as able well to take as some of the fundamentals like a, a good overcoat and good a overcoat, decent pair of shoes and so on being able exactly. to keep the heat on that sort of and thing and they've yeah. been tracking this um, looking at a basket of goods what things cost mm. uh, looking at rent transport rates and so on transport costs to establish precisely each year what they believe an individual needs mm. to live on and this year in fact last year um, they concluded that the living wage as it's called should be at about 11 euros 90 now I established a low pay commission back in 2015 and remember the national minimum wage at that point was 8.65. We've now had, because of this expert group, um, four successive increases. Um, the government itself has a target of reaching a national minimum wage of €10.50 uh, by the end of this erocus. I don't believe that they'll reach that mm. at the slow rate of progress. Um, so Which still falls well still below falls the well living below. wage rate it, of it And remember, that's for an individual mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yesterday, you would have seen some stark statistics published in the... Irish Independent, uh, where we have had, 
you know, have considerable numbers of families, um, increased numbers of families claiming what's known as the working family payment, uh, the payment formerly known as family mm-hmm. income supplement, which in effect is a subsidy or a supplement where the government tops up your wages to give you and your family some kind of a reasonable income to allow you to make ends meet. Yeah. So we've the working family payment, several hundred million euros each year going to families who are working hard for a living but not able to make ends meet. A national minimum wage that doesn't meet the minimum uh, adequate uh, income standards for individuals. So what we're looking at here and what I believe the Low Pay Commission should be doing is actually targeting the living wage in Ireland, the introduction of a living wage over the next um, couple of years. And without welfare supplements, I think it's long been established uh, that uh, the poverty rates in this country would be through the roof and it's welfare that keeps us out of uh, that type of uh, scenario. That, that, that's right, yeah. You know, before, you know, if, if you look at incomes alone, um, you know, we are one of the most unequal countries um, in the developed world uh, but our social protection and taxation system does a very good job in terms of the heavy lifting mm. of redistributing that income. Mm. Uh, I would prefer um, if uh, those who are working hard for a living got decent adequate incomes rather than having to depend on the state because nobody wants to have to depend on the state to mm. see their incomes topped up and in fact those resources should be used for the things that I think you and I and most listeners would like those resources to be used for. But that's a, 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 a distribution tr- of yeah. wealth from the high earners who are paying the taxes uh, to prop up the incomes of the low earners when they need it. If they need it, they qualify for these welfare payments. If they don't need it, they don't qualify for them. Well, that's right, and it's important So that does we a student have... who is living with his parents uh, and working need to be on the living wage, or is the national minimum wage sufficient? Um, well, remember there are sub-minima rates for people who are in the first two years of mm. uh, employment uh, at, at, a, at a certain age. Um, I, I, well, I've never a young person, regardless. Uh, of, yeah. Well, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, I, I've never been a fan of the sub-minima mm. rate idea. I believe everybody who's working for a living should receive mm. um, a fair uh, income, um, and that includes younger people as mm. well. So I've no difficulty whatsoever in younger people, uh, anybody else, uh, anyone who's working for a living, getting this basic uh, minimum floor. Um, you know, we can't, I think, put a price on that or devalue work because it's been done by somebody who happens to be younger. Remember, this is this is about an individual. Mm single person, Michael. But the cost of it's living is far lower for them. If they don't have uh, rent or, or a mortgage uh, to pay and don't have children to bring up or some of the other expenses and obligations that people have, uh, well then they don't need to earn as much. And you could say the same about right, some yeah. individuals, older people let's say, who yeah. are out to get out of the house and do a few hours work and are, sure. are quite happy at receiving the minimum wage and their other half could be on a very high rate of uh, uh, of uh, earnings. Yeah, but I've never believed in principle um, that um, somebody should be paid any less uh, for the job you know, compared to the person who's sitting across the desk or sitting standing across the shop mm. floor from them. That's an important principle. Everybody should be paid the same. And where, you know, we have families who are um, aren't adequately covered in terms of, we have, as I say, the working family payment and other forms of assistance available to make sure that um, people have a reasonable standard of living or can aspire to a reasonable standard of living. My problem is that we have an over-dependence on income transfers Mm. in this country um, and that there's responsibility on employers. Um, You know, for example, we have uh, sectors of the, entire sectors of the economy that are addicted to low pay. Mm. Retail, hospitality, Mm. um, 
certain aspects of healthcare, certainly private healthcare mm. provision. Those um, employers, though, are, would say that those jobs wouldn't be there if they had to pay more and uh, were allegedly at a, an almost full rate of employment. Uh, would we have higher unemployment because there would be fewer jobs available because employers wouldn't be able to afford to uh, employ people? Well, well uh, this is why, uh, Michael, we set up the Low Bay Commission back in 2015. It looks at an evidence base in terms of what the economy can handle and absorb mm-hmm. in terms of what uh, uh, increases to the minimum wage that might be and, and what it is people require. Um, because remember previously uh, it was a case that a minister uh, or indeed the social partners during the spell of uh, social partnership we had in this country could make a recommendation or decide what the rate of the national minimum wage would be. And those increases were infrequent, they were unpredictable and provided a lot of uncertainty for mm. business. What the Low Pay Commission does and actually the evidence that they've gathered, and this is important, last year they published an important report that proved what I had said originally when I established the Low Pay Commission when a lot of big businesses uh, were complaining to me that... Um, this you know, plan mm. to increase the minimum wage over a period of time would destroy the economy. There was no evidence for that whatsoever. That was scaremongering. And what the ESRI, the Economic and Social Research Institute and the Low Pay Commission said, was that uh, predictable incremental increases to national minimum wage over a period of time uh, does not damage the economy and neither does it impinge on employers um, creating mm. jobs. That's the important thing. Nobody should be in the business of legislating anybody out of a job. It's important that people work. It's important that they uh, work hard to you know, make a living. That's, mm. an, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important social thing. Um, so An increase, though, of around increases. 80 euro a week is what you're talking about for the very lowest paid people. Uh, on over a period of time, Michael, uh, nobody's saying a that week. anything like that would happen. Mm. Over it. Like, I mean, for example, in, in, in the manifesto that uh, I developed back in 2016, um, we proposed over a five-year period that the uh, living wage would be reached, mm. and that was going from a national minimum wage of 9.15 to 11 euros and 50 over a five-year period. Mm. And like what they've done in the UK with the Low Pay Commission is actually do exactly that. They've pegged mm. the national minimum wage to 60% of, of what they call median income, mm. um, and they've pegged it at that. So they have what's described as a national living wage yeah. uh, in the UK, but that, that, uh, which that is increase, 60% of a median income. But that uh, increase of 80 euro a week is about a 20% increase on existing earnings. Uh, do everybody get, uh, or does everybody get a, a 20% increase? Um, well, I mean, that's that would be for... Um, the market essentially to decide mm. because obviously different sectors will respond differently. Remember, Michael, we've only got about 120,000 people in this country mm. on the national minimum wage, so it would only probably affect, well, it would affect probably maybe mm. a quarter million, 300,000. Because remember, when you increase the national minimum mm. wage, it has an impact on a couple of hundred thousand people around that. So yeah. the work that the Low Pay Commission does isn't just important for those who are on the minimum wage because mm. lots of people who are working in retail, hospitality, mm. uh, other sectors uh, that's characterised by low pay, their wages are linked to the national minimum wage. So exa- for example, if you're on €10 Euros mm. an hour, you may find that your uh, salary may go up maybe by 10 or 20 cent mm. because there's a tradition that there is a um, you know, kind of uh, connection. Well, you would hope so, wouldn't you? I, I mean, let's say the two of us... Lots of employers are, don't want to be minimum wage but let's say the two but they're just slightly above the minimum wage. Sure, but let's say the two of us are, are working today, talking on the radio, and I'm on the minimum wage of 9.80 and you're on the living wage of 11.90 and suddenly my wages increase to 11.90. Do you stay on 11.90 or do you get a 20% increase as well? Uh, because 
if we were to suppose that whilst we're both talking on the radio, you've different responsibilities and you're supervising what I'm doing and so on, and uh, there's uh, other uh, considerations to take into place. You've been here, let's say, for five years longer than I have, uh, or or whatever the case is. Uh, You're not going to be happy with that. So you're going to want a 20% increase. And if that goes all the way up to the very top, well, then uh, it's going to have little or, or no impact. And this is the argument against increasing the minimum wage to the living wage because the living wage or the minimum wage uh, will then be valueless uh, and so the cost of living will just increase to render it useless. Well, that's why it's important that we ask, for example, the Low Pay Commission to examine this. Um, this isn't um, simply an idea that's been plucked out of the air. Mm. Um, this is an idea that um, has the backing of a considerable number of expert academics, trade unions, think tanks and so on. And um, this is an idea that works. It lifts people out of poverty. Uh, it ensures that people are less dependent on the state for income mm. top-ups, making sure that the resources that we have are, you know, go to um, the provision of services and welfare supports okay. elsewhere. Um, you know, we've but heard if you get 80 euro a week extra, again, but yeah. if you get 80 euro uh, extra a week and a loaf of bread goes from 1 euro to 120 or your rent goes from 1,000 to 1,200, uh, what's the difference? You, you, yeah, no, we've you, had this discussion yeah, before about you, the upward you, pressure that... Your um, spending power that, hasn't increased. Well, yeah, not necessarily, but remember we're talking here, you know, about, look, not, 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 every, not everybody would look... W- w- wages w- wages increase, they decrease uh, in terms of wh- wherever the economic cycle might be or where you are in that economic cycle. You know, we're talking here about a relatively small cohort of uh, the Irish workforce who, in my opinion, um, should be on better wages to allow them to make ends meet. That's what this is about. This is an idea I think his time has come. Um, it's a project I've been working on for some time. It's something that can happen incrementally. Nobody's saying that a magic wand will be waived and that this 11 euro an hour mm. should be introduced today or tomorrow. But how we do you suppress that? the increase in the cost of living so that the increase in the money people earn mm. has effect? Yeah, but remember, we're talking about a small cohort mm. of people here um, with a negligible but you're not. If you go back to that, time. if you go back to that over issue, time. if you've got two people, you and me as yeah. the example, I'm on I eighty, and I go up to your rate of eleven ninety. You're going to want a twenty percent increase as well. But remember, Michael, we're asking the Low Pay Commission to take a look at this, mm. um, and that's what I said at the mm-hmm. outset. I, I, no, but I, 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 I never. Do, do, do I, what I mean, it's not actually a small cohort of people; it's everybody because well, there's it, a trickle it, up it, effect. It, it may very well create mm. uh, upward pressure on mm. wages, but what creates upward pressure? Wages is, and you know, we've had these arguments on the program here before mm. about the impact that it could have. <coughs> excuse me, on prices, on uh, rent, on uh, other um, uh, activity uh, across the economy. I, I, I understand that, and that would have to be obviously measured properly. At the moment, the national living wage, the living wage, uh, is a uh, um, uh, something that you know a small number of um, organisations have have paid. For example, I mean, back in twenty fifteen. Um, I set up the state's first living wage forum. We uh, engaged um, literally a couple of hundred, hundred employers into Dublin Castle, spoke to them about the benefits of paying a living wage. Because remember, Michael, if you're paying a living wage, there's more money in the economy, mm. more money that's there to, to spend in shops and in hotels and restaurants and bars and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> th- th- those those resources are, are, are recycled 
uh, around uh, the economy and everybody gets the benefit. We had a number of employers sign up. Unfortunately, the political momentum uh, since uh, I, I left office has um, um, decreased, unfortunately. It's momentum we hope to be able to gather up again. Uh, this year, I'll be working with um, the um, various interest groups to try to uh, convince employers as well of the benefits of paying a living wage. Most employers actually do, or a considerable number of employers mm. pay well in excess of €11.90, Euro mm. uh, and I think they should be celebrated. And um, in the UK, for example, there's a living wage foundation where those who are paying the living wage um, are, are assessed uh, every year. Um, they engage with the living wage foundation. Um, they um, they find as well in terms of um, the businesses they operate, those who are living wage employers, that they have a ben- that there's a benefit to their business because you know all things being equal, Michael, I think if people could afford it, if there's a shop that's a living wage employer mm. selling jeans um, and one next door that's a minimum wage employer, mm. you're going to go to the living wage employer to support those people who are paying their staff a living wage. Mm-hmm. So there are benefits for businesses uh, as well. Benefits for society, benefits for the economy, and benefits for Would it not be of more benefit, though, to bring down the cost of, of living? Because uh, there's the question of competitiveness, and uh, the political season gets underway again today. The first meeting of the Cabinet is to take place. Brexit is to top the agenda. And in the event of Brexit, well, then we'll be looking at uh, a country that will be very competitive uh, in terms of Ireland's uh, ability uh, to attract investors uh, and uh, the higher the wages, the less attractive we are. Um, wages is only one aspect of, of, course. Com- of competitiveness. We um, have shown with the increases to the minimum wage over the last few years that Ireland hasn't lost its competitive mm. edge. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about wage rates and so on. Most of the the, the, the reasons why investors come to Ireland is because of the skills and talent that mm. we have here. The fact that we are a you know English speaking country, a bridge to the US and a bridge to uh, Europe uh, as well. Um, what I don't want to see happen in terms of Brexit is where there is a race to the bottom in any respect. I mean, the danger is, and I think one of the main reasons why um, you know certain elites in the Tory party want to see Brexit happen is because they can essentially torch all the regulations and so on that they must abide by yeah. as members of the European Union and significant parts of those regulations apply to working people. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the benefits um, uh, that um, people have seen across Europe in terms of better working standards um, and and so on. But, uh, but that's what we have to tackle. Union. Albeit um, fairly, well, and perhaps it, yeah, it, it, it's a we, more we, prudent thing to say, look, let's look at the cost of housing, bring down the cost of, well, well, of the, rent, the cost of houses the, themselves and so well, on. This is the point I've made increasing wages. Here when mm-hmm. we discussed mm-hmm. the idea mm-hmm. and the concept of yeah. living wage is that there are so many uh, aspects feeding into the living wage rate that can be controlled by government. Transport costs, mm-hmm. for example, uh, utility costs, mm-hmm. um Housing costs being the key one. Um, the national, the, the living wage technical group said this year, I said it on the programme when they published their report, I think last summer, Michael, that um, if it were not for the fact that housing costs are spiralling, uh, that the living wage would have remained at the rate that it was last year. So in many respects, the increases to the living wage, um, the, the, the notional living wage, mm. uh, are driven by um, in recent years by increase in housing costs, and you can understand that. So they are costs that government can control. So if government wants to control wage demands, um, and you know the requirement for wages to increase for, to allow people to make mm. ends meet and have a reasonable standard of living, then they need to control transport costs, control 
gas bills and electricity mm. bills, control rental costs. They're not doing that for abjectly failing to do that. All right, and of course many government uh, employees falling well below uh, the living wage rate uh, as we speak. Uh, That's why I said, Michael, you know, and have said the last couple of years that it's important that the state uh, lead by example. Mm. Uh, There are probably about 10,000 public servants who earn, uh, on average, their hourly rate is less than €11.90. It wouldn't cost a lot of money. We've done the research on it to ensure that the state itself is a living wage employer and, indeed, that those who are contracting work to the state uh, are, 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 are on the, the, the living mm-hmm. wage uh, as well. That's work that's ongoing. Uh, we speak to you at the beginning of uh, a new year, obviously, uh, and uh, this is a year that we'll see some elections. Uh, we'll have uh, at least two elections in uh, this state, the local elections and European elections. How many elections are the Labour Party uh, preparing for? Um, well, uh, we are actually um, never been more prepared for general election. I think mm. the same may be said for all parties, Michael, because, of course, we're in an uncertain um, position at the moment. Uh, I don't um, believe that what Leave Radcar and Michael Martin have said is true, that there won't be an election this year. I think there's every prospect of an election this year after the local and European elections uh, and uh, before uh, the budget in October. Uh, I'm anxious to have that election. I think we need it. Um, the air needs to be cleared and we need stability in the country. Um, at the moment, this minority government situation isn't working. They're kicking far too many cans down the road. It's not good for society, not good for our economy. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for coming into us and uh, for joining us here this morning. As always, Labour Party Senator Jed Nash. Michael Reed on LMFM. The IFA says uh, that on-the-spot fines for littering which were introduced uh, this year are not working and that instead farmers are continuing to run the risk of being fined when other people dump litter on their land. Thomas Cooney is the environment, uh, I beg your pardon, the environment chairperson with the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association, and joins us now. Good morning, Thomas, and thanks uh, for joining us. And you're uh, expecting an increase in illegal dumping following on from uh, the Christmas period and uh, the extra waste that people generate. Yes, good morning, Mike. Um, yeah, um, we generally do get it in this time of year. Um, there, there isn't in post-Christmas, you know, after the all the wrapping paper and presents and all the stuff that comes along with Christmas, we generally do get a, an increase and we are starting to get complaints about it already to get phone calls from various places around the country where there is stuff being dumped into farmers' fields and along the roadsides and various different places. Um, some of it, the increase is coming the year because there was a 40% increase in online retail sales. And the amount of packaging that comes in, in the when you, when you buy stuff online is, is increasing the amount of waste that is there as well. Um, and that's yes, to increase to 10,000 tonnes, as I understand. Yeah, it, a 40% it? increase, which mm. would bring it up to 10,000 tonnes, yes. And... Um, a lot of a lot of this stuff, the cardboard is is free to recycle. You know, if if this proper civic community sites were were made available on the periphery of towns, you know, like there is there is a number of measures that could be done to encourage people to to recycle it the proper way. Now, some of it some of it would have have a cost to it, but the majority of it, cans, bottles, all that sort of stuff, can can be recycled free of charge. Um. We need better surveillance. As you said, the -the on-the-spot fines aren't really working because there's not enough of enforcement. There doesn't seem to be enough of a resources put in place um, to to catch the the perpetrators that that is doing. There is serial dumpers out there. There is um, people just going going around collecting stuff at a reduced rate and dumping it in the near the field than they find. Um, 
we want increased surveillance, increased um, CCTV, um, better education, better civic community sites on the periphery of towns, and a, a, a kind of an awareness campaign, you know, on radio stations, television, mm. social media as well to make people aware. We also we also are looking for a, a change in the legislation to remove the responsibility of the landowners and. We've we've getting phone calls from farmers in Kilkenny, Kerry, you know, where they're mm. getting threatening letters from the county council saying that if they don't clean up the, the mess in the fields, mm. that they will be responsible for it, that they could face fines. Well, just, just, just explain that to me. I, I mean, if I'm uh, looking at the amount of rubbish I've generated over the Christmas and I think, well, that would fill the black bin and probably another one or two and I decide to drive up uh, and throw it over the wall into your field. What happens next before you get a fine? Are you warned or asked politely to remove the rubbish and clean it up or what happens? That would be it, yeah. yeah. You will you will get a letter from the county council saying that, that it needs to be cleaned up or you will face a fine, yes. Mm. Uh, and um, I suppose we, we we think that this is wrong. The farmers have been unfairly treated in this situation because it's not it's not they are doing in the first mm. place. So we we want a change in the legislation to remove the the responsibility of the landowner. Well, I, I take it that you have to pay one way or another because not only do you have to go and do the job of picking up the rubbish that somebody has thrown into your field, but then you have to dispose of it, and that will oh, you cost. Well, you have to pay for the disposal of it as well, yes. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we need that coupled, coupled with the proper enforcement as well to, to stop these people from, from committing this, this offence, you know, and, and we, mm-hmm. need, we need more boots on the ground, basically, more patrols on the ground, litter wardens, uh, let it be litter wardens, let it be people, let it be mm-hmm. CCTV, let it be drones for hotspot areas, we need it because, and we have we have brought this to the attention of Minister Sean Canny, and we will be bringing it to Minister Bruton in the coming weeks too, and we're meeting them as well. And we have we have brought this to to the his predecessor, Minister Nocton, and we've brought it to the ministers. Go back three or four ministers, mm-hmm. and we we are going to have to get a, a delivery on this one because, it, and it's it's an issue. It's an issue in County Mead. It's an issue in in Loud on the mm-hmm. periphery of any county that has large towns, which is nearly every county. It's an issue uh, uh, more so on the periphery of the larger towns and cities. And it it appears as though it is being taken seriously by government. Uh, Minister Bruton uh, has said that whilst this is uh, the responsibility of local authorities, uh, the Irish Independent reported yesterday that his department is to review its anti-dumping initiatives. Yes, and that, and that's we welcome that, and and but we will we will out of that review, we will need those results. We will need a change in the legislation to remove the responsibility of the landowner. We will need better resources put in place. We will need better enforcement, and because mm. we have a beautiful countryside and we want to keep it that way, you know, and farmers are doing the best to to our custodians of the countryside and keeping the land uh, looking as, as good as possible, you know, and looking after their animals and all the rest. But the problem here is that you're being forced to keep it looking as good as possible or you face a, a fine. You don't want to be fined. And if nobody is held responsible, will the rubbish just remain on site? No, that's... that's we we, we don't want... We, the, this serial dumpers is going to have to mm. be clamped down. That's what I'm saying. We're going to have to have better resources put in place to stop these cereal dumpers, and maybe maybe we need more competition in the waste industry as well. Maybe some places, some parts of Ireland, have only one waste collector. You know, maybe there needs to be more put in place. You know, maybe they need to be better subsidised. Whatever it takes, mm. 
whatever it takes. And look, people are saving money on, on online sales and all the rest. And, you know, like maybe people have to be encouraged to, to pay for their bin as well. Maybe that's, that's could be, could be another way around it, you know, but yeah. some of it, a lot, a lot of it is, is, free to recycle. Do you know the green waste is all food waste is all can can be recycled in your green bin, do you know? Um your cardboard can be recycled, bottles, mm. um plastic containers, a lot of that stuff can there's a, edu- a combination of education, enforcement and change of legislation is, is basically what's it's it's a complete overhaul and look at we welcome the review and we will be mm. bringing this to to the minister among other things, do you know, that we have for Minister Bruton when we do meet him now in January. Uh, and when people use your field as a bin, what typically do they dump? You could have anything from household waste, mattresses, even Christmas trees. And it's, it's basically, it could be plastic bags. You know, it's, it's a mixture of just your household bin, typically from that to furniture. It can be building waste has been has been tipped into... To, Farmer fields close to Dublin, you know, like so. There, there can be anything. It's it's mm. a mixed bag, basically, of anything that you can get. Uh, and then when you talk about building waste, uh, I'm sure that on occasion you're talking about something like asbestos, which would be very expensive to dispose dispose of. Mattresses are, are very expensive to dispose of relative to other things, uh, and something like a, a Christmas tree is biodegradable. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, um, but it's unacceptable that a farmer would would be, have to be, or, or any property holder it could be a business owner. Or it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a farmer. You know, they can, mm. if there's if there's a vacant spot where there's no people around, you know, they can they have been dumped, and it's not necessarily just farmland. It can be business land or landowners uh, land as well. You know, like so. Um, it, it is it is a problem, and it, it's getting worse. Yeah. Uh, um, and but what, what what do these people say when they're confronted? Which they, they have, there was there was one farmer in in Dublin um, did did confront them and he ended up getting assaulted, you know, up up in North County Dublin, you know, like so it, um, like the, the it depends on the individual. Like some people are just uh, just once off flight tip and you know where they throw stuff out the window of the car. That's mm-hmm. different. Where you have where you have people going around with a, a transit van or a small pickup doing doing waste collection at a reduced rate, they're what you call them semi-professional people, you know, or unprofessional people if you want to call them. They would not be probably the friendliest of people to to um, approach. So the the proper thing to do there is to just report report it, report the site and report the reg number or whatever of the of and, and try and get get a, a prosecution there but but we, what we need is the proper surveillance around the country there is a lot of CCTV uh, in different villages and areas around now so maybe we need more on the roads and these hot spots where, where there is stuff being dumped we probably do, do need more council CCTV put, put in place and, and to act as a deterrent for these and, and if there was if there was one or two good fines on these people or if, if it is real bad, a prison mm. sentence, whatever, mm. it would act as a deterrent. That's it. One or two examples, a, a little bit like dog fouling, uh, that if you, yeah, if you yeah, actually yeah. prosecuted yeah. people, gave them hefty fines, put it on the front page of uh, the local newspaper or whatever mm. it is. And, 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 and send a signal to them that it's not worth the risk.
All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, Thomas. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning, though. Thank you, Thomas Cooney, Environment Chairperson with the IFA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the closure of uh, Playground in County Carlow is uh, being highlighted by ISMI, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association, for how personal injury claims are having an adverse uh, effect on how we live in this country. Neil MacDonald is Chief Executive of ISMI, and a very good morning to you, Neil, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. A compensation claim has been made. Uh, You're not trying to adjudicate on that claim, I take it. Uh, but uh, the upshot of it is uh, that the insurance prem- premium has increased beyond affordability. Uh, correct, Michael, and good morning. Um, no, of course we're not. Uh, we, we don't know the circumstances of the claim, uh, so we don't know what happened. We do understand that this park, which is in a very small village in Carlow called Tin Ryland, it has an astro pitch, a tennis court, and a, and a children's playground, so it, it could be any of the above. Um, the issue for us, though, is you know when 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 either an, an adult or a child goes to a facility like a, a playground or a tennis court or an astro pitch and and uh, goes out to play or play a game. Uh, there's a reasonable or legitimate expectation that someone could slip, trip or fall and that isn't uh, by virtue of the the negligence Mm. of someone else. The same with running in a schoolyard. uh, Exactly, exactly. It it is that simple, Michael. So the, the difficulty we have is we consider it grossly unfair to the operators of facilities such as this. And remember, this is a not-for-profit, free community amenity in the countryside. We think it's grossly unfair that that claims like this can even be entertained in the first place. It Mm. completely negates the notion of personal responsibility for your own welfare. It attempts to transfer it to someone else. And the long-term upshot of this is if our system continues to permit this sort of rent-seeking behaviour by by citizens and by the lawyers who represent them, there, there won't be uh, playground, free playground facilities and free tennis courts and, and free astro mm. pitches like this left. Uh, and as you say, uh, not-for-profit community amenity that already has to pay 2500 uh, in covering its insurance and that's uh, to be increased now to 8300 Yes, now we're hopeful. I understand from locals uh, in the Carlow region that they're shopping around and hopeful of reopening the facility with a lower uh, premium than €8,300, but it's almost certainly going to be more than €2,500. So as as we said Mm. in our press release, we hope the place would would open soon. It appears that there's good news on the way. The difficulty is, and you 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 know, we were reporting before Christmas on on a school child in Limerick that got five thousand euro for Ash Wednesday ashes on his forehead. The, our, our system just allows the most vexatious, silly claims in. Unfortunately, what, what actually was that claim, Neil? That, that that claim was in connection with um, a, a child, who, a minor, whose whose parents said that the ash remained on the child's forehead for longer than you know, twenty four hours or so. Mm. It 
it was stated in court that he was subjected to some abuse and, and slagging by his, his colleagues in school, and that resulted in an insurance company payout of €5,000. Uh, against the diocese, was it, or against the priest, I, I, or the church? Against, or <laughs> it, against the school, mm. uh, we understand that the insurer was Allianz, but again, the effect of that sort of thing is, you know, insurance companies don't run these things on a charitable mm. basis, and and that school can expect an increase in their premium as a result. Right, you yeah. have, you have to I'm not familiar with that, sir, but the, the school took the child to Mass, was it? Uh, and they got ashes for ashes? I understand like that, that yeah. as, as happens in a lot of uh, Catholic schools, mm. that a priest visited to distribute right, ashes okay, on Ash right. Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, um, so it did happen on the school premises. Mm. There, there wasn't a lot of detail in, mm. in the case because the, 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 a settlement had been agreed. But, but the issue is when the difficulty for us is when insurance companies, and I, I'm loath to criticise them, but mm. when they settle cases like this, they effectively establish a precedent which opens the door to that sort of behaviour. Well, a, there, there is a, a very simple solution, isn't there, uh, that priests don't uh, administer ashes or, or, or however you put that on Ash Wednesday, that playgrounds close and that schools don't allow children to run in the schoolyard. And you're, you're putting your finger on what we have been observing for a long time, Michael, which is, you know, the cost of insurance issue is not just a monetary issue. If we continue down this road, then, it, you know, insurance companies will start dictating policies as you've just mm. voiced there. You know, no run policies in schools, no ball play in, in the yard, mm. ball play only on a pitch with a designated teacher as referee. These things, uh, we we're, we already have crashes in membership in ISME where the insurance company is only indemnifying children who are playing indoors. They're not indemnified if they're playing outdoors. So there are massive non-financial health costs to the sort of carry-on that we're entertaining now in our legal system. And we really need people to stand up and speak up and to say this is wrong. We need our politicians, we need our church leaders to stand up and speak out and say what is happening is immoral, it is wrong, it has to stop. And uh, I'm sure you're interested as members of the community in what happens in the communities that you live in, uh, but I gather that this is also an extension of uh, the claims that are being made uh, against your members in how they go about their business as well. Yes, it is. And and don't forget, a lot of small business owners are are members of councils or community groups or boards of management for which they're not paid. They do that sort of work pro bono and for the community. And yet they can find their name mentioned uh, on on a a statement of claim when these things come in. So this our, our claims culture is having a really toxic effect on Irish society. And, you know, we're sick of saying it, uh, we, we really want action now. We want um, Minister Darcy and the Department of Finance to stop telling us about all the reports and studies and commissions they've done. We actually need to start to see legislative change because un- unless we legislate this stuff away, it's not going to go away because it's far too lucrative for the claimants and the lawyers that are involved. We estimate that mm. this 
um, this activity is worth about 350 million euros a year uh, to the to the lawyers who are involved in personal injuries lit- litigation. And, and who pays for it? I assume the answer is that we all pay for that. Motorists, homeowners, yeah. mm. school. If you're asked mm. to pay a, volunt- a so-called voluntary contribution mm. to your to your children's school, that's where all this money comes from. It mm. is actually at the end of the day, it's coming out of our back pockets and it's rent that's been attracted to these sleazy claimants and the lawyers who represent them. And increases premiums so that you have to pay more in insurance as a small business or a big business or anybody else so that when I go to the shops and I buy whatever it is that I'm getting, then you've got to cover your costs, so that's going to be more expensive as well. Absolutely, and Dave, I suppose that there, you have to make a difference between motor insurance, which is a, which is a, a legal requirement mm. and it's an offence not to have it. And then when you talk about insurance for shops, of course, it's not a legal requirement to have it in a shop. But the difficulty is if you're not insured for public uh, liability in a shop, one claim can put you out, of, can close you down. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment, Neil, and thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us Michael. this morning. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Tom was in touch. He was listening into your interview at the top of the programme with Senator Nash. And he says, I'm on the minimum wage and I think I'd probably be better off financially on the dole because of the various other supports available. However, I want to work and I'm able to work. I think that the minimum wage is too low when you consider the cost of living in this country. If it could even go up by another euro, it would be a big help. Oh, it would make a big difference, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mary was also listening into that interview and she says that Senator Nash is right in her opinion. There are many people working who can't make ends meet and that's because wages are too low. Just not enough because of the cost of living here. When you look at how much rents have gone up, insurance has gone up and all of this, she feels, should be taken into account. Mm, well, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I suppose the argument that we were putting to Senator Nash is uh, that if wages go up, the cost of living goes up quite often, at least. It's the case and that if you get €80 Euro a week extra, what does it mean to you? If a, a loaf of bread goes from €1 Euro to one twenty, mm. or your rent from 1000 to 1200 John phoned in to say that that most people have a very comfortable life in Ireland, that the country is on the up and that people can afford to do most things and thinks that the minimum wage should be left alone. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. On uh, dumping, Richard phoned in and says that dumping goes on everywhere, not just in rural parts of the country, that you see, the, see people dumping their stuff all over towns. And what bugged him was at the bottle banks over the festive season. When they were clearly full, people were still leaving their bags of bottles behind, creating an eyesore. However, he does add that there should be additional collections in place mm. at busy times of the year, like Christmas time, yeah, to maybe prevent this. I think that's a, a good point. Uh, but for those people who did leave their bottles outside of uh, the bottle bank, uh, it's quite possible that they'll be getting a, a letter in their door uh, because uh, there is usually uh, CCTV at uh, those bottle banks. And I think people are 
fairly often, or that it happens fairly often at least, uh, that people uh, receive a, a fine for leaving stuff outside of the bins when they are full like that. Let's uh, hold that thought though for a moment and uh, talk uh, about what's called the second optional protocol to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Minister for Children, Catherine Sapone, has said that Ireland now meets all of the legal requirements uh, to uh, implement uh, this uh, international protocol and uh, this has been welcomed by the Children's Rights Alliance. Tanya Ward, who is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance, has written to the Irish Times today saying that it is uh, the final step in defining the kind of country that we are when it comes to the care and protection of our children and young people and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Tanya, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, This uh, looks at uh, many offences like child trafficking, child abuse or child prostitution uh, and clamping down on those who try to profiteer from children uh, and uh, indeed uh, the uh, sale of children for that matter. That's right. I mean, it's it's a, a really probably one of the most important human rights treaties uh, that the UN has produced because it's dealing with the most serious crimes that are. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Committed against children and young people. And as you mentioned, it deals with the sale of children uh, for exploitation, including, let's say, for their, their, their organs. It also deals with forced labour, um, and often forced labour will prevent a child from actually going to school and, and getting an education. And it also deals with the distribution of child abuse images, which is, I mean, there is a lot of it happening, particularly at the international level, but also in, in, in every domestic country now ha- is, is unaffected by this. Um, and it also has special protections for children who are victims of these types of crimes. So really important overall, because it means that the Irish government now has to have laws addressing all of these key issues and also has to have services and supports protecting children from uh 
child abuse images, prostitution, child labour and exploitation. Uh, And whilst many of uh, the crimes themselves may not be taking place in uh, this country, we may be facilitating some of them in the virtual world uh, that we live in, uh, especially in terms of child sex tourism. That's right. I mean, uh, sex tourism is a, is a major problem, actually, globally and internationally. But in Ireland, when you look at the prosecutions for trafficking, actually, what you see is that about a third of uh, people who are trafficked for sex tourism or uh, prostitution are actually children and young people. And what is really shocking, and people don't realise this, is often Irish people who are trafficking their own children. Uh, for sex tourism and exploitation. They might be moving their child from this country into another country uh, to profit from this type of offence. So that's very serious. But I have to say is, I mean, Ireland is doing well to ratify this protocol, but Ireland is one of the very last countries in Europe to actually give effect to the protocol. Um, And we had lags behind for far too long in addressing these serious issues. Um, A good example of this is uh, up until uh, 2018, before we had the Sexual Offences Act, um, you could view an image of uh, child abuse material. But unless you downloaded it, you couldn't be prosecuted by the Gardaí. So we had loopholes in our laws. Um, that meant offend, that offenders could, con- could continue to offend and not be prosecuted by the Gardaí. Um, and one of the other important things that's just happened this year, and it's the reason why the government is now in a position to sign up to this protocol, is that we now are putting uh, measures in place to protect child victims. Because the prosecutions of these types of crimes are actually very low. They're very low across the board. And there's very good reasons for that. Because for a child who's already been offended in this way, um, it's very difficult then to go to the guardie and tell the guardie what's actually happened. And then to have to tell the judge what's actually happened, uh, tell the lawyers what's actually happened. They often are re-victimised by, by, by this event in their lives again and again and again. Um, and it, the, the reality is is that, you know, there are long waiting lists for therapy if this has happened to a child. Mm. Um, and sometimes there are long delays in the courts as well. You could be waiting as long as two years if you're a child for these types of cases to be prosecuted. So I suppose all the measures that the government are putting in place are really important because if we're, if we're serious about addressing this type of uh, crime in Ireland and internationally, we have to put the laws in place and we have to put the services in place. And, uh, uh, many of the laws in place nationally, but what about outside of uh, this jurisdiction? If we were to ratify this protocol, what difference would it make uh, in places like the Philippines, uh, where children are sold as sex slaves or virgin girls in Southeast Asia, as the case may be? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, most, co- most most of those countries have this protocol in place, but what is interesting is there is a, a particular law in place that if you are an Irish person or someone living in Ireland and you travel abroad for sex tourism, the, and, and the Irish Gardaí get a report of this from, let's say, someone in Vietnam or the Philippines, mm. they can actually go and prosecute the person when they return back to Ireland. And I suppose this is one of the other big challenges in this area, that we do have some of these really important laws now in place. But do the Gardaí have the resources to investigate them? Um, because often, really, they're reliant on reports being made to them. And that's why I suppose when if you ask anyone, you know, how prevalent are any of these uh, offences 
it's always hard to know because it's really based on who has actually made a report um, and the Gardaí could only be scratching the surface of, of, of a really important problem. So what we need is, you know, really good resourcing of the Gardaí, giving them all the tools that they need to make sure these types of crimes can't be committed against children and to get in there and prevent them from happening in the first place. Okay, but it also makes us a, a cog in this international wheel against this type of behaviour. That's right. I mean, one of the challenges for Ireland is, you know, Ireland in the past has been used as a point of to traffic children. So children and young people, they might be moved to Ireland first off because they found some way to get into Europe and then they're moved off into another country. Often uh, the UK and often to Italy, children were, were being moved on. And I suppose one of the important things that the Gardaí in Ireland have to make sure that they have in place is when you have identified a child who's a victim, of child prostitution or who's been involved in producing images of, of, of child abuse, you have to make sure that you have a safe house for them in Ireland so they're protected because the risk of being re-trafficked by these criminals is very high. Um, you can't accommodate big groups of these young people together because one of them could be very vulnerable. A trafficker could be in contact with them already mm. and then the whole group of children could be, could, be, could be a victim of it. So you have to make sure that once a child like this has been identified, they are, in, they are in fully protected from these traffickers so this can't happen to them again. Uh, and you highlight in your letter to the Irish Times today uh, a pilot uh, one-house model uh, that has uh, been established in Galway. That's right. Um, it's a measure that has come from the uh, audit of the Gardaí's powers around child protection that Professor Geoffrey Shannon conducted um, two years ago now. And I suppose what they're trying to do is they're trying to you know, take account of the fact that children are being re-victimised um, again and again when they have to go and tell the therapist what's happened, when they go and tell the Gardaí, when they have to go and tell the judge. And what they're trying to do is in this one-house one model, um, you would go there, you would meet the Gardaí, you tell them your story, you'd have a therapist, you'd do your therapy you mightn't, have, you mightn't have to retell your story again and again and hopefully this would be a way to speed up the whole process so the child can I suppose begin the therapeutic journey because people do survive these events in their lives they, and they go on to live ordinary lives but the key is, is making sure they have the services as children and they have all the supports that they need and I suppose this one house model, if it is successful what we'd like to see is it being rolled uh, rolled out throughout the country as well. So at the moment, there is an issue if you're a child and you're a victim of these types of crimes. You know, you might end up in um, a sexual assault unit, but people aren't trained to work with children. So if we had this one house model across the country, we could make sure that every child gets the kind of service and supports that they need. All right, Tanya, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Tanya Ward is uh, the chief executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Now, let's go back to some more of uh, the calls that have been coming to us. What else have you got for us there, Marie? Yes, I have a couple of comments here, Michael, in relation to topics that we covered yesterday. John was listening into the interview with um, Marade McGuinness regarding Brexit and says, what about all the English that moved to Ireland to live and work? Will the English have to reapply to stay in Ireland if Brexit comes into effect. Well, no, not and the Irish not in England, uh, but uh, the English in Germany or Spain, perhaps, uh, and vice versa. 
Um, Tony got in touch to say, Michael, unfortunately, my first contribution of the year is on this supposed momentous occasion of the introduction of abortion. I've been listening to your guests from both sides of the argument and I, of course, would be aligned with Mr Tobin's view on the matter. But it strikes me that while we had the first baby in the country announced yesterday as being in the Lord's Hospital, will we now have similar announcement of the first baby killed in the state being announced from this year on in the interest of... truth and balance and on the matter of the Sinn Féin contribution I'm hearing that the number of take-ups in the medical profession is more in the order of 65 than 165 perhaps you can get some clarification on this says Tony Okay well as I understand it it's 165 and uh, more detail on the story uh, as we were discussing it on the programme yesterday and uh, the HSE uh, reported in the Irish Times today to be saying uh, that uh, there were 20 women involved in the calls to the My Options line seeking terminations. Finally, Michael, a tweet from C following your interview with Ken O'Healy regarding his annual protest at the tolls outside Drogheda. Uh, this listener says, I live in Kells. I have to pay three tolls to see my dad in Dublin. He was sick before Christmas. Ten euro for every trip to Dublin. Dreading to see the e-flow bill this month mm. will definitely be more than 100 euro. OK, unless you avoid the tolls, which has to be an option for everybody. We leave it there. Thanks, uh, Marie, uh, and uh, everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to us being said. As always, we'd love to hear from you and our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, you may remember the Occupied Territories Bill, which we discussed with Independent Senator Frances Black when she introduced it uh, to uh, the Shannon. It was unclear at that stage as to whether it would be passed by the Shannon because of Fianna Fáil's position and how Pink Floyd's Roger Waters implores Fianna Fáil to support the bill, which uh, was uh, something uh, that came as a surprise to Frances Black, I think, and to many others. Uh, the upshot of all of that, well, anyway, was that Fianna Fáil did eventually back this bill and it passed through the Shannons and now Fianna Fáil is to introduce it in the Dáil in the coming weeks. If passed it would mean that there would be a ban on importing goods from Israeli occupied territories in Palestine. Uh, The bill will have the support of all of the opposition parties including Sinn Féin and we're joined now by its spokesperson on foreign affairs and trade Sean Crow, who has special responsibility for international affairs and outreach and a, a very good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. I was going to say it's going to be opposed by the government but that seems very unclear at the moment. It seems clear that it'll be opposed by Fine Gael based on the advice it's receiving from uh, the Attorney General uh, who says uh, that the bill is not enforceable uh, but it seems as though some independent ministers are keen to support this bill. What do you think will happen? Uh, well yes I, th- I think as, as part of the programme for government there's uh, uh, part of the the bill there would be that uh, they would recognise the state of uh, Palestine. Uh, that's part of the mm. ongoing discussions that are going on. We, uh, as you probably know, and your your listeners probably know, the the Iraq, this, uh, the, the Shannon and the the Dáil passed a motion uh, about three years ago now at this stage that uh, the, that we would Ireland would recognise the, the the state of Palestine, but. And again, the, the government at the time spoke against it, but yeah, the, the, the members actually voted for it in the end. So we, we, we might be facing something similar again. Um, first of all, I suppose what, what Senator Black and 
many of the independents who are supporting this bill are asking is that the government give a free free vote to all all members of the Oireachtas family that they can make a decision themselves, which I think would be the, the most logical way of uh, moving this forward. Uh, because there is members of Fianna Gael that are supportive of this bill. Right, uh, but uh, there's legal advice from uh, the government's legal advisor, the Attorney General, uh, which says uh, this isn't enforceable. If he's uh, correct in that view, uh, is there any point to introducing legislation which will fall? Well, there is. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, there, there's, there's legal opinion, uh, you know, the opposite way as well. And, you know, it's eminent uh, international lawyers that have actually come out and said that there's nothing illegal about this, that this is just following through. And I suppose what, what the bill does do is that uh, it recognised that, um, that under the international law, the transfer by a state of its civilian population into a territory, it's militarily occupied as a war crime. And that's, it's, I suppose the bill is basically recognising that and it's following through then that goods and services and resources that are coming out of those occupied territories would be made illegal. That, that has been the position of, the, uh, you know, six years ago, the Irish government said that they would, um, you know, that they were concerned about the continued expansion of these legal settlements uh, in, the, in, in Palestine. And uh, they, they said at the time that if it continued, that they would actually move to, with, within the EU and within, within Ireland itself, they would move to legislation. But uh, that hasn't happened. Now, that was six years ago. It's a different type of uh, makeup of government, but it's, I suppose it's still dominated by Fine Gael. You would think that, you know, if they said six years ago that they were going to move on this, that they should, uh, you know, they should follow up with that rhetoric and, and actually do something practical and something that could, could make a huge difference to the people who were living in those occupied territories. But undoubtedly it would end up in the courts, given that the government has said that this is uh, the legal advice uh, that has been given to it. Not necessarily. Well, unless uh, someone, you know, some citizen takes it, you know, or, uh, you know, some importer or uh, some shop, you know, says, well, you know, we're selling these uh, settlement goods. We don't believe they're they're illegal. But under international law, they are illegal. So I've no doubt that it was taken forward. They're saying that, uh, you know, it'd be very hard to identify the, the goods that are coming in from, again, these settlements. But... You know, we, we were looking at one stage to, you know, all, all settlements, all goods that were coming in from these illegal settlements, that there'd be, a, you know, a basic labelling on it. And that was talked about for many, many years. And, you know, we were waiting on initiative coming from the EU on that. But again, that hasn't happened. Some countries have, you know, recognised the likes of Palestine and Sweden, for instance. And again, you know, the Irish government saying, you know, when we pushed this through the door, it wasn't helpful, it, you know, that it would, you know, be unsettling, that it would, you know, discommode the Israelis and so on. But, um, you know, we, we believe that we need to be doing something practical, some initiatives that are around this. And this bill is clearly one of those initiatives that would work, that would uh, send the right signal uh, to Palestinians who are living in those occupied territories that they're not forgotten, they're not ignored and they're not being left behind. Yeah, but would be would it be a, a statement of support, or, or would uh, there in fact be any action taken? Can you identify the goods that are imported from the occupied territories? Well, at the moment, you you go that you, you can, yeah, you can say you can identify many of the the, the some of the goods that are coming from, um, uh, you know, some some as fruit, some as um, you know uh, vegetables, uh, other, other products. Mm. So there's there's I suppose there's particular areas 
within the occupied territories where there's goods actually manufactured and uh, they're exported around the world. Uh, I suppose would, that would be part of the work rather than following the introduction of the bill. Uh, it would be a matter of then identifying those goods that are coming in. So instead of just, you know, um, the, 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 the label on the, the goods coming on, say, potatoes coming in, you know, coming in from uh, uh, Israel, it would, be, it would have to state, you know, that they were coming in from from a particular area, that they wouldn't be able to just say that these are Israeli potatoes, that if, particularly if they're coming from an illegal settlement. Is, is it possible that it would be seen as a, a statement determining what should be the outcome of a peace process if there was to be a peace process? No, it's it's, it's just following through on, on, on um, international law. Like the, the uh, International Court of uh, Justice uh, as it, 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 you know, it states that as it stands, the only occupied territories have been confirmed as occupied for the purpose of international law. The ICG is the, the, the Palestinian territories. So it, it basically says that um, you know that any 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 um, any goods, any any uh, production resources that are being used in in that particular area um, is, is is illegal. You know, if there's profit being made uh, by the occupying power in that particular area that it's illegal. So I suppose it's just given, it's given legs, it's given uh, muscle to uh, those who want, you know, want to oppose this this type of activity. We know just from, if you look at a map of what's mm-hmm. happened in the, Palestine, in the Palestinian territory since the occupation in 1967, you mm-hmm. can see that it's like a virus that's just taken over particular areas. And as we speak now, there's probably... Israeli settlers going into particular areas now at the moment and trying to take over that land. And what happens then is that the Israeli army uh, moves in, sterilizes the area around the, the area where they, they put the settlement. This could be in your in your house, in a, an apartment. If you have a hotel, they could move into the hotel. The hotel becomes a sterile area. All Palestinians are forced out of that area. And, uh, they're, they're, you know, and the difficulty then is that uh, in many cases, they get uh, planning permission. They're allowed to build. They take the water of the, the natural resources uh, from the Palestinian people. And that's how it, it, it expands and expands and expands. And the area that the, the Palestinians have uh, shrinking and shrinking constantly in yeah. relation to this. Well, when you see the map of uh, the territory from 1967, as you say, it really has shrunk. Uh, but would you consider it to be international terrorism on, on uh, the, the part of the Israelis? Many would, yes. I, I would say, you know, I think mm. it's, uh, you know, what they're doing is wrong. They're, they're occupying, they're, they're, they're oppressing the people and they're jailing children and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're forcing people off their own land. So, and they're forcing, you know, they're, they're knocking down uh, buildings that Irish taxpayers have uh, supported. They're, they're forcing uh, NGOs and they're, they're making it impossible for NGOs to operate in, within that, those territories. So, yes, uh, clearly it's, it's mm. an oppressive regime. And that's, uh, and that's a strong that statement. It's an apartheid regime mm. that, the, you know, the civilian population, the Palestinian population, are treated as second-class citizens in their own land. And that's a, as strong a statement as you could possibly make uh, uh, about what's happening. And as right as it may be, to put it that way, what do you think the likes of Donald Trump would make of it? Donald Trump has a different view in relation to Palestine. He's, he's recognised, uh, you know, that, hmm. you know, uh, you know they're, they're located there. 
their um, their their uh, embassy within uh, mm. Jerusalem itself again, you know, which was seen as a sort of an international uh, great supporter and ally. Uh, and I suppose that's the point. Uh, I mean, what will it do for international relations for this state if we're to make statements like that against Israel? think that people would see that Ireland is, uh, you know, that we're, we have a, a huge international reputation, that we're, we're, we're not seen as uh, um, anyway biased in there, but we do support the rule of law and we do support, um, you know, people who are oppressed. So, you know, it's, it's wrong what the Israelis are doing. Mm. The Israelis want to recognise, you know, like part, there is no viable um, the, peace process at the moment in in uh, there hasn't been any viable process and what's happening is that they're using the lack of that process and um, to continue to settle and um, put put illegal settlements on the on the land of uh, the Palestinians and, in, and and at the same time forcing people off their land or forcing people abroad and uh, unfortunately that's the situation that's that's faced so mm-hmm. we have a, an opportunity here with this bill to do something positive, to move beyond the rhetoric, and to, to um, this would be a legal framework to ban these imports from these settlements, which are, I would argue, already illegal under international humanitarian law, and importantly, uh, domestic law in this state. So it's, it's, it's a possibility of, of doing something uh, positive for the Palestinian people. And those who are being oppressed at the moment. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sean Crow is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on foreign affairs and trade with special responsibility for international affairs and outreach. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, let's look at uh, the year ahead in terms of road safety by, in part at least, looking back at the year that was uh, record low for road fatalities. There was a 4% drop in the amount of people who lost their lives on the roads last year. That was 149 lives lost. Uh, just uh, marginally uh, better than the year before, but still an awful lot of people who lost their lives uh, last year. It comes as uh, the Gardaí tell us uh, that they arrested almost 9,000 people for drinking or driving uh, and use of drugs while driving. 130,000 drivers were detected for breaking the speed limit. 30,000 were caught while holding a phone while driving, but just three people were convicted of texting whilst they were driving. We'll talk about some of these issues now with Tony Toner, who's a driving instructor with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. And of course, all of this comes on foot of the news yesterday that common sense prevailed in terms of the overtaking laws. This one metre or one and a half metres for overtaking bicycles. Something that the Minister is apparently being criticised for today. What are your thoughts on that? Morning, Michael. Um, I don't think anybody can doubt the vulnerability of a cyclist in a road traffic environment. And the legislation uh, to bring in a distance, um, to me, genuinely, while in essence it is good, in practice it's, in, it's nigh on impossible to uh, to monitor and to 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 bring to a court and and get a, a conviction. 
Hence, I think it's been um, shelved, let's put it that way, and may come back in another format. But it doesn't get away from the fact that there are cyclists on the road that are vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and these cyclists, and I, one thing, Michael, I, I, I've always said it on your show, to get away from stereotype, to get away from them in no situation, because if you categorise people as cyclists, as as truck drivers, as taxi drivers, as ambulance drivers or whatever, as women drivers, as men drivers, as young drivers, while we can statistically target those particular road users, um, they are all road users. And if there is a behaviour modification required by one sector, they should be targeted in an educational process, not the, 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 the first action shouldn't be an enforcement process. It has to be education and there has to be encouragement following that education process. Mm. To, to ride a, 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 you know, a, a cycle on Irish roads where they, they always position themselves in on the left, where all the grit of the road is accumulated, where the road surface can often be broken, where there's gullies because there is um, a system to take away any surface water, where there is leaf and, and, and residue in this time of year, uh, where the camber is very often sloping away from uh, the direction of travel. All of these things. Plus the fact the vast majority of people who cycle also drive cars. They also, when they're not cycling, they are pedestrians. Mm. So, as I say, what I'd love to see is um, a, a getting away from, you know, a stereotypical isolation of one road user and putting them up adversarily against another. And it shows the increase in the amount of cyclists as well, I take it, when you consider that we've had uh, record low in terms of uh, the number of road deaths, but we see increases in uh, the number of people who are walking uh, and dying as a result of road traffic accidents and indeed cycling and dying as a result of road traffic accidents. You know, we have, at the moment uh, in Ireland, we have something close to 2.7 million vehicles on our roads in uh, 2018. If you go back to 2007, we had 2.4 million people, something around that, or million vehicles on our roads. So we have 300,000 of an increase. And, you know, they're on this tarmac stuff. Mm. Uh, And it is shared, as I said, with motorcyclists, with truck drivers, with cyclists, and it's shared with pedestrians. The vulnerability vulnerability factor of being a a cyclist, motorcyclist, and a pedestrian, when they come into contact or into, dare I say it, any any sort of conflict with a, a mechanical prevail vehicle, like a car, a van, a truck, or a bus, is always going to end bad for one of those vulnerable groups. So uh, in, in, in the car industry, where you know I, I operate as a, as a journalist as well, the car industry has improved safety in cars now phenomenally with the amount of AI that's available on cars, artificial intelligence, and passive and active safety systems. A modern-day car can detect a pedestrian. Mm. It can warn the driver via uh, an audible warning within 
the cockpit as the car. It'll actually break the car to avoid a collision. Your forward collision assist, you have multiple um, assist systems that stops the car from veering out of lane in terms of it'll warn you that you're wandering for whatever reason, whether mm. it's fatigue or some form of, um, how would you call it, distraction within uh, your drive. And that technology obviously helping to keep us safe and undoubtedly feeding into the fall in the number of road deaths. There were 149 road deaths in 2018 and if you compare that to the worst year on record in 1972 there were 640 road deaths. It really is an incredible difference. That's in a a time when there were fewer... Yeah, well there were fewer cars uh, and they were driving slower but uh, nearly uh, three times the amount of road deaths. Plus the fact our road system has vastly changed. Um, you know, with the advent of um, dual carriages, particularly mm. motorways, it separates the flow of traffic from the opposing lane. We still have areas of the road where you have cross traffic on, on certain dual carriages. Um, and uh, that cross traffic where you have a cutting that allows traffic, in, you know, to halt in, in, in the vicinity of the central reservation and then make, make its way across. They, you know, they, you know, no more than the accident black spot. And there are still loads of those around the country. You'll see the advance warning sign, accident black spot ahead. That accident black spot sign has probably been there, Michael, for 30, 40 years. Mm. Now, how can you identify something 30 or 40 years ago? And now, in 2019, still have done nothing about it in terms of engineer the problem out of it. You know, get, you know, get rid of that corner. Get rid of that accident black spot area itself. But if you recognise it, surely we should eradicate it. Yeah, at the same time, though, uh, we are uh, safer on the roads uh, than we would have been in, in previous years. And uh, another reason for that, I, I take it, is the NCT. But I, I'm reading a remarkable story this morning about the NCT and how 32,907 cars which were tested for the first time, that's about 2.6%, they say, of over a million cars which were tested for the first time up to the end of November, fell into what they call a potentially lethal, dangerous fault category. They were called death traps. They were uh, sent out of uh, the NCT centre with stickers on them because they were in such a bad state. In some uh, instances, uh, they were towed away uh, to a garage rather than somebody risk driving them. Well, you know, the the thought of having uh, the sharing the road with uh, a car that is not fit for purpose, that has a defect on it, that renders it, you know, it, it gives the driver no chance of possibly breaking because of the fault with it. It gives, um, what do you call it, a behaviour to the car in terms of whether it's steering or suspension that doesn't allow it cope with normal road conditions. And again, we are still to go through possibly the worst of our winter. It's been very good and mild to us uh, in, in, in uh, this year so far. Um, but um, it is up. There is an onus here, Michael, and mm. you cannot get away from individual responsibility. Whether you are a cyclist, motorcyclist, truck, van, car driver, pedestrian, there is an onus on every one of us not to compromise anybody else and most certainly not to compromise each other. And while 
the road deaths have come down, as you said, 149, unfortunate, are not going to sit around the family table uh, for the year of 2019. There are thousands, thousands of people who are injured in road traffic collisions. Every one of them are avoidable. And these people who are injured are carrying mental and physical, uh, you know what I mean, um, conditions into the rest of their lives. You know, there is there is more to road, um, how would you call it, um, deaths. Um, with we, we forget about all those who were injured. We forget about the demand on our emergency services going to all these. And 95% of it is down to human error. It's not down to mechanical mm. breakdown. Not down to an act of God. It is down to human, human error. Or human error or human negligence. What do you make of uh, the number of convictions for texting? Just three people convicted for texting. It'd be hard to convict, uh, I think. Hard to get the evidence uh, to do it. They have to be seen. Uh, it has to be... We know what happens. But you have to bring it to court. And then it has to be proven in court. And that... Yeah, you have two legal teams, one for, one against, and uh, a conviction ensues if it was pinpointed to date, day, time, place that that person was texting at the moment that they were seen, and all of that stuff. It's it's difficult to uh, to bring to court and get a conviction on. We all know it is happening. Uh, as you know, Michael, I do. A bit of driving across America and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It is massive, massively clamped on in the USA because it is the cause of untold carnage out there. Where and, and again, it is the younger population who are um, dexterous enough with their fingers to be texting, and it is their prime form of communication is texting, not phone calls. It's texting. And it has to be, it must be, absolutely, individual responsibility. It has to be stopped. People have to say, hey, when I'm driving, Mm -hmm. I can't text. Like on a modern car, Michael, you have Apple CarPlay Mm -hmm. or Android. You get into the car, you plug your your smartphone in, and if a text comes in, the car will actually read out the text if you wish, Mm -hmm. and the car will actually, by voice activation, reply to that text without you taking your hands to the wheel. And that concentration may save lives. Hopefully more lives will be saved this year than was uh, the case last year. And uh, ironic as it may seem to think of 149 lives being lost on the road as a a positive. It was positive in that it was a record low and hopefully that number will be lower uh, again in 12 months from now. But we leave it there for the moment, Tony. Thank you indeed, as always, Tony Toner, driving instructor with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Somewhat of a a grim subject and uh, the unpleasant uh, thought of what might happen in the event of your death and how your organs may be harvested and transplanted to one of the 550 people who were on a waiting list for a heart, lung, liver, kidney or pancreas transplant. This is under a system that you will be signed into unless you opt in 
out of it under legislation which is to go before the Cabinet next month and is expected to become law by the end of this year. We're joined by Colin White, who's the National Projects Manager with the Irish Kidney Association. Good morning to you, Colin, and thanks indeed for joining us. I take it you represent many people who are hoping for a transplant at some stage, but you're opposed to this measure. I wouldn't say we're opposed to it. I would say we see it as a little bit of a missed opportunity on the part of the government because um, under the current system, um, to be a potential organ donor, you've got to be in an intensive care unit in a life support, on a life support machine when you're declared brainstem dead. At that point, your family is going to be approached and they're going to be asked for permission for organ retrieval for transplantation. If they say yes, it'll go ahead. If they say no, it will not. Under the government's proposal of soft opt-out with family consent, they're going to introduce uh, a register, an online database, where you can sign up to say no to organ donation. And so in the event of you being a potential organ donor, again, you're in the intensive care unit, you're on the life support machine, you're declared brainstem Mm. dead. If you have not signed the opt-out register, your family is going to be approached, they're going to be asked for permission for retrieval, If they say yes, it will go ahead. If they say no, it will not go ahead. So in essence, there's not a huge change in practice there. But where we see the missed opportunity is that um, the government are going to invest in a register, but they're only going to register people who want to say no to organ donation. We believe that uh, very simply, you set up a yes-no register. So as well as capturing the no's, you're capturing the yeses. Because under the current system of the organ donor card, the purpose of the organ donor card is to encourage the family conversation because um, the government have recognised the important role of the family in the process of organ donation that um, they they have the final say-so one way or the other. So regardless of whether you have an organ donor card or you've ticked the box on your driving licence, your family can refuse retrieval? They can still refuse retrieval, but it's like currently the donor card is there as the incentive to try and encourage conversations. There is a prompt to encourage conversation. The digital organ donor card app that we have, um, it encourages the the downloader to send a message, be it on a WhatsApp family group or whatever way it might be, again, to share the decision to initiate the conversation. Mm. So what we're saying is, If the government take one step beyond their no register and turn it into a yes and no register, you then have a central database where people's wishes are recorded. So rather than trying to remember, oh yes, when I was 15, I took an organ donor card, um, and it's kind of 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, um, it's a central database where you've recorded your wishes to say yes to organ donation or no to organ donation, You've got a record there that can be consulted and it then makes a decision for family, but it also makes the approach to family somewhat more informed. So rather than approaching a family and saying, have you ever considered organ donation or do you think your loved one would have considered organ donation? You're now approaching them and saying potentially that your uh, your loved one uh, signed up on the organ donor register, would you like us to carry out uh, his or her wishes? So it's now an informed approach, but it's also... Rather uh, than the assumed approach, which the government is uh, suggesting. 
Yeah, like it's it's kind of helping to take the mystery out. Like a yes/no register is not going to capture 100% of the population. Like countries that have yes/no registers, they don't capture everybody. But with the government's no proposal, you're only going to capture a small percentage of the population where you'll have a central database recording their specific views. If you stick in a yes box beside the no box, you're now capturing a bigger percentage of the population. So you now have a better chance of an informed decision being made than uh, under the government's proposal. And under this proposal that the government is making, uh, if you have signed up to the opt-out register, the family won't be uh, approached. But can the family approach uh, the hospital and say, well, uh, we'd like to consider uh, donating the organs? That's a very interesting question. It, 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 it puts a question mark over it. Like in, uh, in Wales, uh, they introduced uh, opt-out legislation at the end of 2015. And my understanding is even if somebody has signed up and said no to organ donation, the family can still be approached and they can be asked, well, does that no mean no? Was that their latest decision or was that kind of no 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever? Mm. So you then come into a very grey area of um, kind of consent and what is consent. But I think you, you're you never going to get a perfect system because not everybody is going to engage in the conversation around organ donation. So you want to maximise your potential. And we believe to maximise the potential is to have a yes register running alongside the no register. Okay, and people can make their views known at the moment by carrying an organ donor card or making it known on their driving licence. You'll be uh, imploring people to do that in March uh, when you'll have a a campaign specifically to encourage people to do that. No doubt we'll be hearing more about it then uh, and indeed over the course of the 12 months with uh, the legislation that the government is uh, considering at the moment. I'd just quickly say if your listeners would free text donor, D-O-N-O-R, to 50050, they can request a donor card. And also to conclude with um, a huge appreciation to the 80 families in 2018 who said yes okay. for the donation when asked, um, uh, because the transformation that they've made so many lives is it's humbling and it's, it's magical. Okay, thank you indeed. Colin White, National Projects Manager with uh, the Irish Kidney Association, who brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.